I want to say another welcome to those of you who've just um, arrived a little late. It's so good to be together. And um, it's especially joyful today because we have little Milo here. Luke and Janice had uh, uh, their little boy a couple of weeks ago, and he's here for his first Sunday. We also heard that uh, Charles and Kate had a baby a couple of days ago, a little boy as well. So these are good times. I want to... Um, I'm in favor of us having lots of babies, as you can tell. Um, I want to take you back into the Psalms today, and we're going to be reading uh, Psalm 126 this morning. I'll read it to you and then explain again what it is that we are doing. Psalm 126 begins like this, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, last week we began this new series, and we are opening some of these Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms that run through from 120 to 134, a collection of songs which were sung by the people of God as they journeyed from the various regions around Israel back to the temple, and they would sing on their way or sing on the steps of the temple as they come to gather and to worship God. And the reason for which I've chosen these psalms, some of these psalms anyway, to preach over the next couple of months is simply that I believe that they, they have it within them a, a potency as a kind of corrective, first of all, to our hearts, to kind of correct our minds and emotions and, and rectify our hearts where we, have, uh, where we have experienced kind of various kind of maladies and sicknesses spiritually and emotionally. And these psalms speak to those issues. They call us back also to God himself to the centrality of God. And they draw us together as a people. They draw us together into the experience of being one people. You can imagine, can't you? You can picture the scene of the people of God streaming into the capital, streaming into the temple, all gathering, singing the same songs together. And there's a reminiscence in being together that we are God's people. And that this reality shapes our lives in profound ways. Ways that we actually become forgetful of in our day-to-day lives. Now why this particular psalm then? This psalm is about the power of God to bring about spiritual renewal and revival in the lives of believers. And non-believers. People who don't yet know God. Spiritual renewal. Spiritual revival. I'm speaking here about a a phenomenon that can take place in the lives of individuals. The word revival simply means coming to life. It can take place in the lives of individuals and also of small groups. It certainly is what takes place when you first come to know God. You experience a personal revival, a coming to life. But there's also a sense in which, and this has been recorded thrust through scripture and also in the history books and the life of the church over the last 2,000 years, that individuals and small groups of people can experience an unusual move of God upon them in which they come alive spiritually. And then, of course, this phenomenon often has the effect of spilling out 
that can be a kind of um, there can be a kind of a, a, a chain effect as the work of God is amplified and begins to move in whole communities and churches such as ours, sometimes in whole cities, and many occasions through history as well, entire nations, where God, as it were, is kind of blowing by His Spirit upon people, and suddenly there is a spontaneous combustion as people begin to come alive spiritually in remarkable ways. Now, where do I see this in this psalm? You have to understand that the backdrop of this psalm, as the psalmist is speaking about the restoration of Zion, which is Jerusalem, of course, but it's more than just the restoration of a city and its walls and its, its people. Zion is a symbol. All through Scripture, Zion is a symbol for the work of God, the kingdom of God on, on, in the world. And of course, the backdrop to this psalm is that things had obviously been in a state of decline and maybe even of disaster for Zion. If you read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, there are many accounts and stories of the various things that happened to Jerusalem, from pestilence and famines through to civil war, such as when David and Absalom, his son, were at war with one another through to the siege, such as when Nebuchadnezzar put a siege around Jerusalem and then a conquest of Jerusalem, the exile of its population into foreign lands. You see all these kinds of things happening, these disasters that had take place and on numerous occasions throughout the life of the people of God and particularly this great city, which was the center of God's work in the world in that, in that era. Now, the reason why that's important, of course, is because In Scripture, whenever Zion suffered, this was never seen just as a, you know, what we would call a natural disaster, perhaps if it was a famine or some such thing. These things were not seen as just natural, just the the outworking of nature just doing its thing, nor as just a bad luck, such as when they were experienced conquest. On the contrary, these things were always seen as something that happened under the sovereign hand of God, as a chastisement of God's people because of their spiritual decline, waywardness, the fact that they were falling away from God. So the people of God, the Israelites, if they, if they veered off into idolatry, or if they veered off into lawlessness, or if they veered off into the abandonment of true worship of the living God, what then naturally began to happen over the course of a generation or two or three was that they would see the, the decline result in, in catastrophe for the nation. And particularly for Jerusalem, the city which has been the center of so much strife over thousands of years. And so you have to understand that this psalm is written on the back of those kinds of circumstances. Situations of disaster, but disaster which was preceded by a spiritual decline of God's people in which they've forgotten what they were and who they are and what it means to worship and to love God and to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the backdrop to the psalm. Now, the relevance of this, of course, is therefore enormous for us. Firstly, at a personal level. The Bible is very honest in telling us the stories of individuals who perhaps have walked with God and then experience this kind of spiritual decline just on a personal level. And the consequences that take place there, and sometimes there you see this as a temporary season within the lives of believers, and I think of people like Samson and of David 
and the, the Apostle Peter. Sometimes this is a permanent decline, such as Esau, who said he sought repentance with tears, but it, it was not available to him any longer. It's also true, though, of course, corporately. By corporately, I mean as a people, as communities, as the church of God. Now, I say that because I think, without a doubt, the church, when I think generally of the situation of Christianity in our context, in our city, and in our nation, is in a state of massive disrepair. I know that there are exceptions to this. There are pockets of life and vitality all over the place. But when you take it as a general picture, we've seen the progressive and steady, dismal decline of the church of God in our, in our situation. It's reflected in minimal commitment to, to God. A diminishing love for him. A prayerlessness among God's people. A fearfulness and a timidity among God's people. A compromise and a, a kind of a desire to kind of mold to the ways of the world in which we live and to being more conformed to the world than to God and his agenda for us. And friends, this is, a, this is nothing short of tragic. By the way, I should say on this If you're not a Christian, the one hopeful thing I can say to you then is that whatever you have seen of Christianity to this point may not be a true and accurate representation of the real thing. There's more. And this can be said also to us as Christians. When I read the pages of the New Testament, I'm conscious of a power of God at work among his people, which is astonishing and stunning. Something which I long to see. And so the question that I want to approach this psalm with is against this backdrop that was true of Zion at the time and can be true of the church of God generally as I think it is in our context and can be true of you as an individual against this backdrop of this kind of spiritual decline. How does God bring about restoration? What does it look like when God is on, on the move by his spirit to bring about a radical change? And I want to show you what I think this psalm teaches us. The first thing is this. That God always begins by demonstrating to us our great need for him. He begins by alerting us to our bankruptcy and our inadequacy and our need without him. Now I say this because if you ask the question, what's the most dangerous position for a child of God to be in? It's not when you're in a state of crisis. It's not necessarily when you're in a state of suffering. The most dangerous situation to be in is always when we're in a state of oblivious wandering. A kind of being unaware of the degree to which we might have fallen or wandered away. The love of God in Scripture is so strong, however, for his children that the Bible tells us that God won't leave you in that state. He will intervene. He'll do things in your life in order to alert you to the state that you're in. The book of Hebrews speaks about this in this way. It says that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It says it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? What it means is this, that the love of God for us as his people is so powerful and so strong. That he won't let us wander into a state of sleepy unawareness of our position. He'll do something to wake us up and to alert us to the danger that we're in. And this, of course, is true. This is the context of the psalm. 
that God has allowed Israel to suffer in some way. In some way that was designed to wake them up and to make them to re- cause them to realize that they're in a, in a very precarious situation. They're on the edge of a precipice, as it were. That they're in danger because they've walked away from the God they love. And you see this playing out in all kinds of ways throughout the scriptures. That as God's people wander, like a father, he chastises and disciplines them in order to bring them back to a place of fellowship with him. And it's true also for you as an individual, friends. One of my roles as a pastor is to alert you to this fact. The Psalms say that the way of the transgressor is hard. What it means is that when we're wandering from God, God will introduce situations into our lives that create friction and difficulty and even suffering in order to cause you to pause and stop and understand that he's at work to bring you back to himself. This is his loving discipline of his children. And it's not bad news, friends, it's good news. The reason why I say all that is because I think that where this psalm begins chronologically at least is in a place of real grief. And that these emotions are, are what's hopeful, first of all, in this psalm. You look at the later verses where the psalmist says in verse 5 and 6 that those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. And he goes out weeping Bearing seed for sowing shall come home with shouts of joy. There is the tears and the weeping, which chronologically at least are the first sign of a work of God among this people, and it's the same that takes place in our own lives. If I state this negatively, I think you can put it like this. That where there's an apathy or a lack of feeling or a lack of concern or a lack of anxiety about your spiritual state, that's when you're in trouble. But the way of stating it positively is this, that when you begin to experience a brokenness of heart, what is described here is the tears and the weeping. Perhaps it's for yourself. A conviction that comes in by the work of the Spirit in your heart. A grief that begins to grip you. But it may also be on account of others. God can begin to birth within us A sadness at the state of things as we see them. A real longing for change. This is always the first sign of the work of God. That he begins to break the hearts of believers. When Christians just persist in a state of triumphalism. Where we look happy and jolly all of the time. Something is wrong with us. The work of God, when God moves upon us, you see it in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you? How he's moved with compassion. How he weeps over Jerusalem. And this is obviously the first thing that's taken place within the life of this psalmist. It says, those who sow in tears. He who goes out weeping. There's a brokenness that is the first thing that happens within us when we know that God is beginning to draw us back to us to himself. And I want to add to the, on this, by the way. This is also something that God does within certain pioneers. When God is beginning to do a new work within people, he starts with individuals. People who he's chosen and put his hand on for some kind of leadership. Most of us, of course, we got out about our lives too busy and distracted to really feel the heart of God. 
for the situation at large. But when God is putting his hand on a man or a woman for spiritual leadership, he begins to break their heart for what they see around them. He begins to birth within them an urgency and a compassion and a desperation, a brokenness, an ache, a groaning deep inside the soul. I think you can see this again and again all the way through Scripture. But one story which I want to refer to throughout this message is the story of Nehemiah. He was a man, a Jewish man, who had been living in a state of exile. His own native land in the city of Jerusalem was in ruins, but he's living in Persia, serving Artaxerxes the king. And he hears a story of the situation of Jerusalem. It's possible that he was the author of this psalm, for all we know. He hears the story of Jerusalem and of its, of its ruin, its state of disaster, and he knows that the people of God are suffering because of their wandering away from God. We hear in the first chapter of Nehemiah, it says that a report came to him. They said to him, the remnant there in the province, speaking of Israel, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah is not cold or callous when he, when he hears about the situation of his native land and the city of Zion. And of course the fact that that is representative of the work of God and the kingdom of God on the world. He isn't cold when he hears about this situation. The very next verse tells us that as soon as he's, he's writing in the first hand. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down. It's like he collapsed under the weight of grief. And he says, and wept and mourned for days. Spiritual leaders are those who see what perhaps others do not and feel it more deeply than others feel. What is a leader in the Bible? It's not somebody with ambition or talent or charisma. It's primarily someone with a broken heart and a desperation and a contriteness of spirit. God always begins his work by alerting us to our great need of him. And the way we experience that, first of all, is often with grief. He who goes out, who sows in tears, who goes out weeping, the psalm says. This is the first sign of a work of God. The second is this. That God then begins to stir his people to both pray and to labor for the spiritual renewal that he wants to bring about. He begins to move in us to stir us to become people who pray and work hard for the renewal that we want to see. And this is described here in the psalmist in this poetic language when he says in these verses, he says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. This is a prayer, isn't it? A direct prayer. He's calling out to God. Bring restoration. Then he talks in this metaphorical way. He says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We see it, this partnership of both the prayers of the saints and the sowing, the labor that takes place as we begin to work for the renewal and longing for the revival that God alone can bring. Now this is obviously true, I think, in Scripture as you look at the lives of individuals. There are many situations in which 
we read these kinds of stories. And this is how it takes place within you. You begin, first of all, to be aware that you're in a state of spiritual decline, perhaps even of death or dying. And then, as I said, what follows is this grief that I've been describing, this conviction as God's Spirit begins to bring you to a state of, of, of reckoning that you are not right, that things need to be set right. The sorrow. But then what happens is that God begins to move people towards prayer and exertion, labor, wanting to get things right. I think, for example, of the story of the blind beggar in Luke chapter 18. Of course, whenever Jesus healed blind men, it was a symbolic of him bringing about spiritual sight. And so we must read this story in that sense of someone coming alive spiritually. But you see how this man calls out to Jesus and he cries out with desperation. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's praying to God. But it's not just prayer. There's also an exertion, a laboring that takes place. The crowds begin to try and silence this blind man. But he, he shouts all the more, Lord, have, son of David, have mercy on me. And not only that, but the minute that Christ heals him, recovers his sight, it tells us that he, he recovered his sight and followed him. He became a disciple of Jesus. In other words, there is such a desperation for spiritual renewal within his own life that not only does he pray, but he also exerts himself. He expends his energy on this behalf, longing for and desiring Christ's work in his life. And this is a picture of what happens within the lives of individuals whenever we come back to God. But it's also true for the people of God corporately. When the Holy Spirit wants to do something among a people, recall the story of Nehemiah. I've just told you how when he heard the report of the state of Jerusalem of Zion, the first thing that he does is he begins weeping and mourning, crushed by what he hears. But then he tells us that he said he, said he sat down and wept and mourned for days. And then he says, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Can you see how God had intended to begin a work of renewal? And the way in which he begins that work of renewal is in the heart of this one man. Crushed by grief and then driven to his knees in prayer. And he begins to mourn and pray and fast for days upon end. And he records the kinds of things he was praying. I'll just read you a couple of lines. He says, for example, he's confessing to God. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. But he doesn't end there. If you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, the story of his life, this grief that gives birth to prayer then gives birth to action. He makes steps. He begins to make preparations. He takes his life in his hand, actually, as he goes to Artaxerxes the king and asks for the resources and 
leave from his job to go back and begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And so he begins in this great work of rebuilding the city. Literally, just it's bricks and mortar at first. But of course, it's a precursor to the spiritual renewal that begins to take place within the people of God through the work of that man. I ask you, what might it look like if this sort of thing was to happen among us? I think we would see these, these marks. I think we'd see, first of all, the growing prayer movement among us. You know God is on the move when he begins to awaken individuals to constant and desperate prayer on behalf of God's work. You begin to see also how twos and threes begin to get together to seek God together earnestly. I'm only telling you the kinds of stories that we read of in the history books of when God is at work among his people, and of course in Scripture itself. You begin to see prayer meetings filling as God's people experience a deeper desperation. There's an urgency, there's a passion, there's a longing. You know, when in normal times when we have our upper room gatherings, we gather once a month to pray and seek God together for an hour or two. They're precious, precious times. And I'm always struck by the urgency and the passion in the room. But I'm also struck by how even in a church as passionate as ours is, there's still only a minority of us who gather in that way. Ask any pastor and they'll tell you this. That the most difficult task in pastoral ministry is to call God's people to prayer. Why? Because we don't feel what the psalmist feels. We don't look around us and feel grieved in the way he feels it. When you begin to see the Spirit of God move on the people, this is one of the first marks. You see that this grief gives birth to prayer. God. Do what only you can do. And then it moves into a rise in commitment to work and to labor. As the psalm is describing, the sowing in tears and the going out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. This is laboring for the kingdom. And I think you'll see this in churches. Where God's people become committed to the family of God and to the work of the family, but particularly to the task that Christ has laid upon us. It's not an accident, of course, that the metaphor of sowing is used in this psalm, which, of course, Jesus takes up as a picture of what the church's task is, to sow the word of God, the gospel of good news, into the world. Perhaps even one of the great things that God begins to do is he begins to put his lies on individuals who feel a stirring inside them that they want to devote their life to this work. Christ told us to ask him for this. He said it in Matthew 9. He said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's the same picture, isn't it, that the psalm is using. He who goes out bearing seed for sowing. The picture of farmers at work in the world doing the work of God to bring about the kingdom renewal that God wants to bring in the world. 
One of the things that you begin to see when God is birthing something new, when the Spirit is on the move, when He's doing something unique, you begin to see individuals who feel within them the pressure brought down on their spirit that they want to obey the call of God and step up to this task. Jesus is saying that the problem isn't a readiness in the world to hear the message that we have and to respond to it. The problem is always a shortage of disciples who are zealous enough and passionate enough to devote themselves to this work. Think about the city in which we live. Everywhere you drive around the city, you see, it's like going around a graveyard for the church because you see empty church buildings. There's a shortage of laborers. You hear the stories across the nation at large. You'll hear of ministers who minister in two or three churches in various villages, you know, traveling between one and another because there's a shortage of laborers. Christ said it. He said the fields are white for harvest. You look at the situation internationally, the continents of the world, the billions of people who need to hear about Christ. There's a shortage of laborers. This is what God brings about. This grief that then turns into prayer and an action, a laboring for the renewal that we long to see. And then there is this final thing that the psalm describes. The result of all this. The Spirit of God poured out in extraordinary ways upon His people. Now, in saying this and in describing this, I want to take care. I think it's very important that we never despise the ordinary work of God. This is how we experience His work personally. Most of the work of God that takes place in our lives is the ordinary the gradual, the incremental ways in which God changes you from day to day, year to year, as you grow in Christ-likeness. That is the Christian life. And it calls for you to plod with Him, faithfully, committed to your church, walking with God, repenting of sin, reading His Word, being instructed and understanding what it means to become more like Jesus. This is His normal work in your life, so that you can look at yourself one year, ten years later, twenty years later, and you'll see a trajectory of growth that God willing will never slow down or stop. That's the ordinary work of God in the the life of the believer. And it's true also in congregations, in churches, in God's work in the world. Much of it just takes place in this gradual way. Jesus described it like leaven, like yeast within a batch of dough. It works its way through gradually. There's nothing um, necessarily particularly um, dramatic about it. It's just happening all the time. The word of God is let loose and it begins to change people as it's been doing for the last 2,000 years. This psalm is describing something different. This psalm is describing something extraordinary that can take place. There are a number of observations that demonstrate this to us. For one thing, I think he's he's describing something that happens suddenly, quickly, supernaturally. He says, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. The Negev is the driest, most arid desert part of the land in the south. A place that does not have streams. 
The psalmist is describing how when desert rains fall, overnight you can have rivers and the flourishing as there's fruitfulness even in a dry land. The suddenness, the supernatural work of God that takes place. And history is punctuated by these moments. When everyone looked around, they saw desert, arid, dry spiritual landscape. Suddenly God's spirit moves and there are rivers in the desert. Another reason why I say that this is something extraordinary is because of the degree of joy that we read of in this psalm. It's almost delirious with joy, isn't it? Now I know that in the ordinary work of pastoring and being part of the people of God, we experience happiness from week to week and year to year as we see God's good work among us, of individual lives changed, of the growth of God's people, the service and of community, and of commitment, and of love. All these things bring us joy. But what the psalmist is describing here is something very different. He describes being in a dreamlike state. When God restored the fortunes of Zion, we like those who dream. He keeps talking about joy. He says, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. He talks about reaping with shouts of joy and coming home with the sheaves with shouts of joy. You know that God is doing an extraordinary work among his people when even the crustiest among us begin laughing and celebrating. This is something that, again, you see in the book of Nehemiah. There was a a non-repeatable, extraordinary thing that happened among them. As Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem, he began mobilizing the people native to that city to begin rebuilding its walls. But what took place was not just a physical renewal of the city, as wonderful as that was. What then began to take place was that the people of God in that city began to seek God in a new way. Ezra, the scribe, brought out the Torah scrolls which had not been read from or heard for so many years and he stands in the town square and the people gather in their thousands and he begins to read and explain, read and explain. In other words, he's preaching just as I am doing right now. And as Ezra is preaching to the people, there's a response as the Holy Spirit begins to stir their hearts in an extraordinary and miraculous way. We're told that the people respond, saying, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And it says they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is not something that people ordinarily do. This is something that happens when God is speaking. And they're feeling the work of God in the gut. And they're so moved that the people begin to weep. And Nehemiah has to chastise them. He says, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. He says, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the people begin rejoicing. It's amazing, isn't it? How the tears and the grief at their waywardness quickly gives way. And with Nehemiah's approval and direction and leadership gives way to celebration. And what are they celebrating? They're celebrating the fact that suddenly they feel that they are reconsecrated to God again. That they know their maker. 
This is what happens in the lives of individuals when they come to know Jesus for the first time. There's very often we've seen this uncontainable joy and happiness and a delirium even. It's what happens when God begins to awaken his people. This is an extraordinary thing that that is being described here. And I'll say finally, one reason why I think this is an extraordinary work of God is because the nations begin to sit up and take notice to what's happening. The psalmist says that they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Most of the time, the world is not particularly interested in what the church is up to, except insofar as we cause offense and we're put back in our place. But what's described here is something very different. It's such a power of God on display among God's people that hostile observers look on and say, God is doing something among you. This is what I mean when I describe this as an extraordinary thing. Friends, I want to close by saying this. What this psalm describes is not something that we can manufacture or control or manipulate into existence. It's something that is initiated by the work of God. And perhaps God is moving even among us. I felt more difficulty in preparing this message than I felt in preparing a message for for years, actually. And it's often something that happens, I think, when there's a particular urgency that God wants to say something to us. As I said, we can't manipulate or control this, but what we can do is we can respond when the Spirit of God is moving upon us. It may be the case that you're not a Christian. All of this applies to you, friend. It begins with a sadness and a brokenness. This is a journey into the heart of God. You begin to recognize what you have missed and how much you need Him. And then as that turns into prayer and you say, God, save me, a sinner, God begins to bring you to life. He brings a personal spiritual renewal. But I also long to see this among us as a church. I long to see the work of God that has the hallmark of being the Spirit of God at work. Where we can say only God did this among us. This prayer, this urgency. I want to invite you to pray with me now as the musicians come to lead us. Father God, we want to be responsive to your work in our own hearts, O Lord. As you move us to see the tragedy 
that can take place in our own lives or all around us as we see a dryness and a barrenness. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God will move on us together as one people. As you call us back to worship you in these months and these weeks ahead as we're gathering again. That, Lord, there be a desperation within us to see your work accelerate in our city and in our nation. I also want to pray, Lord, you know it's my heart, that you'll put your hand on individuals within our congregation. It'll be like Nehemiah. You'll feel as they survey the scene a brokenness of heart and a longing to be part of the work. Will be found on their knees in prayer and in fasting, devoting themselves to the work of God and who you'll use to catalyze a move of God in wherever you take them. I pray, Lord, that from out of this church there will be trajectories of mission as you'll raise up men and women to take seriously the demand of Christ to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. I pray, Lord God, that you will speak clearly into the hearts and to raise up, Lord, the laborers within our midst who will be ready to reap a harvest, who don't need permission from man, but need only the word of Christ, the summons of Christ. God, we pray, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. I know that we've tasted the sweet waters of your presence, Lord. I don't think that our church is explicable apart from a work of God. God, we long for more. We look around the cities, the city that we're in, the streets of this city, and we see, Lord God, a hostility to you. It's a spiritual wasteland in so many ways, Lord. We pray, restore, restore our fortunes, O oh God.